Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Catherine Rundle on her new book, The Golden Mole, Another Living Treasure. Catherine Rundle is a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, where she works on Renaissance literature. She has written Super Infinite, a biography of John Donne, which literally this week, as we record, has been shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize, and why you should read children's books, even though you are so old and wise. Both were Sunday Times bestsellers. Her best-selling books for children have been translated into more than 30 languages and have won multiple awards. She has written for, among others, the London Review of Books, the Times Literary Supplement, the New York Review of Books, and the New York Times. And today we're going to be talking about Catherine's new book, The Golden Mole, Another Living Treasure. Catherine, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us, first of all, then, what the idea is behind this book. The Golden Mole and Other Living Treasure is 22 of the world's living wonders. So it's 22 animals, wombats and giraffes and Greenland sharks and hermit crabs and narwhals. And it aims to be a kind of salute to their beauty and to their strangeness and to their fragility and to the many ways we humans have interacted with them. So it's Partly history and partly natural history and partly literary snippets that I find in places like Shakespeare and Pliny and Moby Dick. And it aims to build over the course of the book to be a kind of testament to the astonishments of the living world. And ideally also a kind of a bid to kickstart in a reader what we already know, we already know so much about the fragility of these creatures, but a reminder of it, that the world's beauty is both infinitely greater, infinitely vaster than we can imagine, because we don't know yet. There are millions more species than the ones we know, but also infinitely more at risk than I think we care to remember. And just as an aside, the little selection of animals you gave there in that description is almost exactly the selection I've written down for us to talk oh, about. Oh, brilliant. Oh, well, those are just some of my favourites, so yeah, that's great. Well, that's good then. <laughs> so um, let's talk first of all then. I said in the in the introduction that um, you've written for the London Review of Books and at least some of these essays first appeared there. So what was that? Tell us what that format was like. 
So yes, it started no about five or six years ago. I went to Zimbabwe where I spent part of my childhood, and while I was there, I met a pangolin who lives in a wildlife reserve of rescued creatures, and she is unable to walk the distance that she would need to to gather enough termites because they need to eat huge amounts. So she has a keeper who lives with her. And when she can't walk far enough, he carries her in his, his arms to the next termite mound. And when she wants to be taken, she puts her foot on his foot so that she can be lifted. But she isn't tame and you know, other people are not allowed near her. She is a wild creature with this one relationship with a, a human. And when I got back to England, I was telling people about it. And so many of my friends were saying, well, what's a pangolin? And a lot of them were imagining other creatures. Some of them were imagining tapirs. Some of them were imagining sort of uh, elephant shrews. And so I wrote to the LRB asking them if I could write a very short essay about the pangolin. And it's, you know, nothing to do with books. It's just a brief moment in the LRB and it's called Consider. So it's Consider the Pangolin, Consider the Narwhal. And uh, about half of the creatures in the book, I think just under half, were in the LRB and the other half were written especially for the book. So how did you choose the selection of essays? You said there's 22. So the only criteria I had was that either the species or a subspecies was endangered. But unfortunately, that is the case for almost every animal on Earth. And so that doesn't really narrow the boundary much. So it tended to be things that I had heard an astonishment about. So, for instance, I did seals because I heard a recording of a harper seal speaking English. Uh, They can learn to speak much like parrots. And narwhals because I had a friend, an adult human friend in his late 30s, who admitted to thinking that narwhals were fictional, like unicorns. So again, often it's because of something I hear. And once I started writing for the LRB, sometimes people would write into me, scientists especially. I've been very lucky to have a lot of really valuable relationships with members of the scientific community who just write to me when they come across a fact that they think I might love. And then I spend a month or so researching that animal and then I write my piece. Is there any animals that you would have liked to have included but didn't at the last minute? There's quite a, there's a few that sneak into the introduction, for instance. Yes. So there are a couple where I, I have many, many half-finished animal essays, which I might go back to ones where I began and then struggled to find enough that wasn't just pure biological detail, because I want the pieces not just to be things about like, you know, the astonishing breathing capacity of a capybara, but I also want cultural history of our interactions with these creatures. Often I'm writing about what they tell us about ourselves and about our passions and hungers and loves. So for instance, capybaras, those animals that look like absolutely colossal guinea pigs. I struggled finding much that was written about them that I could access, largely I think because they live in the South Americas and I don't have Spanish or Portuguese. And so In the end, I just used it in the introduction because one of the things I found most amazing was that a man once trained a capybara, a blind man in Suriname, to be his seeing eye capybara, like a seeing eye dog, which I just find so beautiful because it is so rare and so fine and so courageous that a man stepped out into the dark, led by what is essentially a huge guinea pig, and was led home. I find that lovely. 
I saw someone on Twitter the other day refer to capybaras as a guinea pig, which is just perfect. <laughs> That's very good. Let's talk about the book itself, which I don't often do, but this is such a beautiful specimen and it has amazing illustrations as well by Talia Baldwin. Tell us something about the actual book itself, how that came together. So Talia is a brilliant artist who has done a lot of animal work, especially birds. And when we first started working together, we were still in the very early stages of deciding what it would be like. And the thing that I longed for would be, because it's called the Golden Mole and other living treasure, I wanted part of the idea to be that faced with these things, with pangolins and with golden moles, which literally shine gold, they are iridescent, the only iridescent mammal, they make other forms of treasure, gold and diamonds and Rolex watches and, I don't know, solid gold taps. They make them look like a con. They make them look like we have been bad at identifying what is the truest treasure on a vast global political scale. And so I wanted, if possible, to have every one of the illustrations in some way gold. And Talia was so brilliant. She has done black and white illustrations, and then every illustration is in some way touched with gold. So the seal lies on a golden iceberg, and the elephant walks against a gold backdrop of sun, and the hedgehog is pelted with golden rain. And they are, the images really are fabulously beautiful. So we're hoping that people might buy it for people for Christmas, even if they know people who hate books, but if they know people who like pictures it might still be a brilliant present. That's the hope. The golden mould of the title then is the first one I want to talk about, even though it's one of the last ones in the book. Um, And you've just given it a brief introduction and regarded its incredible but entirely pointless iridescence. Tell us more about the golden mole and its wonders. So there are 21 species of golden mole and they're all sub-Saharan African. And It's not, in fact, a mole. It's more closely related to the elephant, but it does look very much like a mole. And they are astonishing. They have staggering hearing. They live almost entirely underground. And they have ears that are so sensitive to underground vibrations that they can sort of tell when like an insect, an ant is passing overhead so they can run up and eat it. But they are the world's only iridescent mammal in the sense that when the light catches them, their fur shifts in colour. You know, it can be red, and gold from one angle and then slightly purpley from another. And one of the things the, the piece is about is iridescence in the animal kingdom. So there are a lot of iridescent living things, huge numbers of butterflies, the morpho butterfly, for instance, which uses, we think, its iridescent blue to communicate with other butterflies over large distances, or um, the male rophorus hummingbird, which has this fabulous iridescent orange bib. And it uses it to signal to mates during mating season. But the golden mole, the only iridescent creature, is blind. And they evolved to be iridescent as a byproduct of of the way that their fur was evolved to be densely flattened and very low friction to make burrowing easier. And it just happened to be a light reflecting density. And so these creatures are a kind of glory of the world cast up by evolution by the world's slow turning it is beauty without purpose and they live their whole lives without seeing their own iridescence 
And I find that very beautiful and a kind of testimony of the marvel of the world that it is more beautiful than it needs to be. Let's talk about the Greenland shark next, which is one of the oldest. I was going to say mammals. It's obviously not a mammal. It's a fish. (laughs) It is a fish. It's one of the oldest fish on the planet. And the oldest fish on the planet. And calling it a fish really does. Yeah, I mean, it really does not not do it justice. (laughs) So they are amazing. Um, The thing, I mean, they are, they are two things, staggering and hideous. So they are quite amazingly old. The thing that defines them is there are sharks alive today that were alive 600 years ago. The oldest one that we ever found, we thought was about 512 years, but we have tested so few of them for age. And it was a medium-sized shark. And size is by and large, not completely, but it is by and large, a good reckoning for age. They do continue to grow. And so the chances that there are sharks out there that are not just 512 years, but perhaps who knows how much more is staggering. So it means that there were sharks alive when Shakespeare was writing Romeo and Juliet, who are still alive today. And their parents would have been old enough to live alongside Boccaccio and their great-great-grandparents alongside Julius Caesar. I find that longevity absolutely incredible. And then they are also very, very slow. Their metabolism is so slow that they sort of need the equivalent of a couple of digestive biscuits a day. And they move at maybe one or two miles an hour. And they can be eaten, but they have to be skinned and fermented and kept uh, for a long time. And then they are apparently a delicacy. In some places, it's known as uh, hakal. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Many people say it is an abomination and tastes like very, very ripe cheese if you left it in a teenage boy's car and then baked the car. So and not delicious, but if you eat it without sufficiently curing it, then you become shark drunk, it's called. You become dizzy and fall over and vomit. So it's better not to eat them. It's better to leave them to swim in their solitary age and silence. I find it absolutely incredible, the idea that there is something being born now that will be alive 500 years from now, if we don't destroy them first. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Catherine Rundle and we're talking about her book, The Golden Mole, Another Living Treasure. And I want to talk about what seems like not prosaic in itself, but because it is so familiar and common animal, the swift next, which is one of my absolute favorite birds. Tell us something about the swift. So the swift is my favorite bird. They can go most of the year without landing. They are the most skyborne birds in the world. They eat and sleep on the wing and they make nests from things that can be found in the air. So like flying straw, but also there are images of like still flapping butterflies being wedged in with little beaks into these nests. And they, if they want to wash, they fly through rain clouds with their wings outstretched. And they are also just wildly beautiful. I don't know if everyone listening has seen a cloud of swifts coming in and dipping down over water, but it is one of the finest things I think a human can see. They look like luck incarnate with those forked tails and those scythe-like wings. They are just quite breathtaking. And the swift is is one of those animals in this book that seems at first glance like not something that is so endangered. But of course, there are species that are. Yes. And in fact, even the one we think of as our sort of common swift, they are increasingly being whittled away, the apis apis. Because as we knock down old buildings, they tend to roost in the eaves every summer and as we knock down the buildings there is nowhere for them to go they return every year and find their nests gone and the space for their nests gone and so people are being encouraged when they're building new buildings to include swift boxes so that they can find places to mate but also the problem that affects all bird life in england which is that the increased use of pesticides means that there are far fewer insects in the air and insects which do not eat crops but which are also killed by pesticides mean that we no longer have a functioning ecosystem on which they can rely. So they are dying in large numbers. And 
it is extremely possible that 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 glorious moment when you see every summer that the Swifts have returned, it's very possible that that moment will cease to happen, if not in my lifetime, then in that of the next generations. Another animal that, well, on first glance might not win many popularity contests, is not particularly cute, but it is remarkable, the hermit crab. Tell us something... (laughs) Particularly, first of all, about the hermit crab's incredible social ordering system. <laughs> okay, so this is one of the loveliest things. Hermit crabs famously inhabit other shells. And without these shells, they are extremely vulnerable. So they need to find shells fairly swiftly. And as they go foraging for homes, when they find a shell, if it's too large or too small for them, they will wait by the shell until another hermit crab comes. And there are these, and then another one will come and another one will come and they will form a line in size order often, um, like a kind of chorus line of hermit crabs waiting. And then when one of the hermit crabs comes who can use the new shell and they shed their old shell, the new hermit crab will take that discarded shell and so on all the way down the line. And of course there are anomalies so they can't find what works but this amazing precision and their their profound sociability just seems to me miraculous you're talking about about a particular species that's really big oh yeah so the other thing about them is the small ones are staggeringly beautiful shining amazing colors yellows and reds there is also a much, much larger brand of hermit crab called the coconut crab. And they are too large to fit in a bathtub. They are absolutely huge. They are known as coconut crabs in part because they can crush coconuts. And they are possibly responsible for the destruction of the body of Amelia Earhart. Because The new theory about when Amelia Earhart disappeared from the sky in 1937 is that possibly she landed on an uninhabited island in the Western Pacific. And although they never found her body, they found a little jar of freckle cream, which they may believe may have been hers, and some human bones, but nowhere near enough bones. And the question of where those bones might have gone, increasingly they think they may have been eaten by the colony of hermit crabs that lived on that island. They tested giving the carcass of a small pig to the crabs to see if they would be able to destroy the bones in a way that they might have done to a human. And they were able to tear it apart in a matter of minutes. So the answer does seem to be yes. So they are this incredible species where the tiniest ones are beautiful and often kept as pets in America uh, in a way that is not good for them and they, they frequently die. But also at their largest, grow to be a metre across and live up to more than 100 years old. So they are a species of infinite variety. I'll just bring up that, um, that male friend in his 30s of yours again, <laughs> um, just to talk about the, uh, the narwhal for a bit, because, I mean, it is an animal that is steeped in folklore and does seem like something out of a storybook. Exactly. I mean, on the one hand, it is ridiculous not to know that a narwhal is a real thing. But on the other hand, a lot of people have been mixing up the narwhal with the unicorn since the beginning of our knowledge of narwhals. We thought that they were watery unicorns. And, you know, we did for a long time think that possibly their horns were unicorn horns. One was presented to Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I, 
as a unicorn horn. And some of the great cathedrals in England would keep them by their holy water and chisel little bits of them into the holy water to take hold of its greater healing powers that they believed it had. So it is one of those possibilities. And you you mentioned the one pangolin that inspired the column that inspired the book. But tell us more about what a pangolin actually is. So a pangolin is a scaly anteater. And they are kind of beautiful grey-green colour. And they have tongues as long as their bodies that they keep neatly furled in a little pouch by their hips, like obviously inside their bodies, not in a sort of handbag scenario. And they are ancient. They predate us by very, very long time. They are perhaps 18 million years old in contrast to our 6 million. And they are one of the most endangered species in the world. They are hunted for their scales and for their blood, and they are trafficked. And you can see why we find them compelling and beautiful. They are quite startling. But of course, the difficulty is often the more beautiful a creature, the more dangerous it is, because our love is a dangerous thing for the natural world. Just one more animal, and that is one which we all love, but mainly when it comes out of a tin, and that is the tuna. Tell us how remarkable a wild tuna is. Well, first of all, they're completely enormous. A tuna is huge and staggeringly fast. They can reach about 1.8 metres, and they can move with such speed because of the torpedo-like shape of their bodies that they are being studied by the US Navy as a, as a body model for the shape of their underwater missiles. Ernest Hemingway had a, a real thing for the idea of tuna, and he wrote this sort of quite super macho piece in which he imagines himself. He says, uh, if you land a big tuna after a six-hour fight, fight him man against fish when your muscles are nauseated with the unceasing strain. And then he goes on and on and on about this. And he says, then if you pull it out of the water, you will be purified and be able to enter unabashed into the presence of the very elder gods and they will make you welcome. It's like, you know, that is the prose of a man who in an ideal world would like to, you know, punch fish straight out of the ocean. And for him, the tuna as being so vast and so beautiful was just the most perfect fish. But they are quite amazing. They are hot-blooded, so they can hunt down deep, deep in the water where it's very cold and where most other fish, cold-blooded, become very sluggish. And they are increasingly, especially the bluefin, wild bluefin tuna, they are increasingly endangered. Their status fluctuates between the critically endangered and then a lot of brilliant conservation work has been doing now to row that back. But they are still on the brink because of our hunger for them and because of a uniquely vile process known as extinction speculation, extinction gambling. The Mitsubishi conglomerate controls about a 40% share of the world market in bluefin tuna. So they are hoarding huge amounts of tuna frozen at very, very low temperatures in huge warehouses. And they say uh, that this is to make sure that stocks are steady across years. But many conservation scientists believe that what they're actually doing is waiting for them to become extinct in the wild, because when that happens, their value will skyrocket. 
And this as a practice, buying up the animal products of endangered species, especially with rhino horn and tiger skin, and hoarding it and waiting for those creatures to become extinct in the wild so that suddenly your hoard will leap hundredfold in value is a thing that many people are doing. And there are accounts written by academics of poachers being encouraged to shoot wild rhinos, not just the ones with horns, but the ones without horns, just in a bid to hasten the day of extinction. So there are so many things driving the destruction of the natural world. So many of them are human carelessness, human hunger, but also sometimes it's incentive-driven. There are people chasing extinction deliberately, which is not a thought to make you proud. No, indeed. And, and that brings me on to, to my last question, really, which is, I mean, I said the tuna was the last animal we were going to talk about, but the final chapter in the book is dedicated to the human. And yeah, sure, we're remarkable and all that. But um, this book, as you said, I mean, it's a, it would make the perfect Christmas present. It's absolutely beautiful thing and it's full of wonder. But inescapably, one also reads this book with the growing horror at how many of the how many of the species within it are endangered. Some of them are gone forever. There's a, there's a golden mole that you talk about that has never actually been found alive. Whether or not that's through you know direct hunting or through habitat loss or or climate change, we are as a species destroying all these other species at a rapid rate, aren't we? We are. I think I wanted the book. The book does touch on the extinction status of each creature, of where it is in terms of its threat. I wanted it mostly to be more than a rebuke to us, a reminder of like the joy and delight and beauty of these things, a sense of what is worth loving and what is worth saving. Because so few people are deliberately entering into a battle against the wildness and beauty of the world. And so I think one of the things to bear in mind is it is a political question, that these are huge structural problems which require huge structural solutions. And really, in amongst all the things we can do, like, of course, you know, not flying domestically and eating less red meat and you know, using less energy, of course, those, of course, we must learn to consume so much more lightly, but more it is about putting in place politicians who believe in the climate crisis, who believe in the need for saving that which is so wildly worth saving. We need to start believing in politics and putting in place politicians who believe in urgent global cooperation. And then, you know, I wanted the book to be a sense of we live among marvels, among staggering astonishments. So many things that we're used to, like hedgehogs. Hedgehogs are incredible. They're like little mice with knives. I mean, if there weren't hedgehogs in England, if there were only hedgehogs in the Serengeti, we would travel millions of miles to see them and photograph them. The beauty of the world is at your door. And so it's not just a book about conservation and trying to foster care. It's also just a salute to the idea that we live among breathtaking beauty. And if we took a little more time to look at it, it would repay our time a thousandfold just in, just in the awe that it would produce, just in the joy. 
So I've been talking to Catherine Rundo. We've been talking about her book, The Golden Mole, Another Living Treasure, which is out now from Faber. And Catherine, we, would you just say something about how some of the profits from the book are going to charity? Oh, yes, exactly that. So half of all the author royalties from the book, in perpetuity forever, will go to two charities that are working to push back climate change and environmental destruction. One of them land and one of them sea. The charities may change every 10 years or so. But um, currently, WWF, big, brilliant charity for land, and then a much smaller charity, Blue Ventures for Sea, which aims to work with local peoples to uh, create sustainable ways of protecting the ocean and also is very dedicated to ridding the ocean of pollution and protecting that which lives in it. And we're done. Catherine, thanks for talking to me. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.